Stephen King cast one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week I'll review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication and just a note before I get any further I'm recording this episode in a different location than I normally do. Typically I'll review these episodes and record them in my basement but I decided I was feeling kind of comfortable on my couch upstairs in the living room so I decided to just the microphone uh, upstairs and record from the the comfort of the living room so it might be a bit more echoey uh, because the the space is a little bit more open so if it just sounds a little bit different than usual um, I, I apologize but this week I will be examining a novel that I consider a high point in Stephen King's creativity And a point to be made in the argument to anyone who will argue that he's just a horror novelist. Clearly, I don't have to convince anyone listening to this podcast that Mr. King is an incredibly talented individual. But it isn't just talent that makes him who he is. He's someone that, when asked why he chose to become a writer, has answered that this is what he was born to do. But he isn't just content in resting on his laurels. He's someone that constantly challenges himself. And as you can see in the 70 plus episodes I've reviewed so far, he's someone that has reinvented himself over and over again, as evidenced by the different phases of his career. It's what has allowed him to be the phenomenon that he's been for the last 40 years. The reason I bring this up is because 1996 was probably the most prolific year for an author who had at the time been publishing for 20 years. He could have very easily hit cruise control, but instead did the opposite. That year was a great time to be a Stephen King fan because from March through September, you received a monthly dose of your Stephen King fix. This culminated in September's dual release of King's Desperation and Richard Bachman's The Regulators, and in the six months leading up to September 24th, King decided to experiment with the craft of writing. And just so you guys know, if you hear some snoring in the background, you've probably guessed it for long-time listeners, it's, it's my dogs keeping me company. Now, for those of you who don't know, a popular form of writing in the 19th century was the serial, which an author would publish a section of a novel at a time. Probably history's most famous serial novelist was Charles Dickens, and it was with this spirit in mind that King decided to challenge himself. So beginning in March of 1996, he decided to throw caution to the wind and engage in an experiment to see if he could duplicate the craft that Dickens had made popular in the 1800s. This style does not allow for second guessing, for much revision, and a belief that the further you head into your story, you'll be able to wrap it up without the benefit of being able to go back to revise early chapters. It's the literary equivalent of a high-wire act, and with 20 years of professional writing under his belt, King was up for the challenge. The result? The Green Mile, a story set in the 1930s South, a tale of racism, of hope in the most despairing circumstances, of imprisonment and freedom, a story of pain and healing, a mouse, the much-loved Green Mile. I'm telling you, 1996, guys, 
This was a time to be a Stephen King fan. Knowing that I was going to be receiving a new Stephen King publication each month was an incredible experience. It was like King was putting out his own monthly comic book just for me. The only problem that I, I encountered with this is that I would devour each installment so quickly it made each month drag on. Anyone reading The Green Mile for the first time now is robbed of that experience, which is too bad. A part of me wanted to recreate the structure of the original Green Mile publication by, I don't know, releasing a review of each installment rather than the whole, you know, maybe review a month or something like that. But, you know, that would, uh, you know, for the show's purposes, just be a bit too stylish. So how I'm going to do this is just, you know, how I would uh, do any any novel. I'm just going to review it all right here in one episode, albeit one that breaks down each book as if they're chapters, which... In a sense, they are. But before we get to the actual review itself, I want to read a listener email uh, from Dave. And Dave writes, I just wanted to thank you for your inspiration that you have unknowingly provided me this summer. Shortly after discovering Stephen King as a teenager, I wanted to write. In high school and in college, I had returned from class determined to put pen to paper. But hanging out with friends became a more attractive alternative than releasing made-up monsters from my mind. Later, I found a job as an English teacher, married, and helped create two children. That greatest teacher perk of all, those priceless summers off, were rightfully spent with my kids when they were young. I did write a little over those 20 years. I published a few short stories in small literary magazines and even finished a few screenplays, one of which was optioned by an independent filmmaker and is currently in development. Still, that giant creative milestone of completing a full-length novel eluded me. I've been listening to your podcast since I first wrote you in March. Hearing you break down King's stories are constant reminders of what makes for quality craft, character-driven narratives cruising through rich, relatable settings on a road where story is king. I am now over halfway through my first novel, a tight little suspense story trimmed with mystery and horror. I will seek publication when I'm finished, but even if the book goes no further than my computer, I feel like that I've come full circle to a place I want to journey as a child. Thank you for being that last push I needed to begin. Dave, I just want to say I don't know where you are in terms of your story, but I hope that you are still writing it. Or actually, I hope that you have finished it. I hope that you have come to the end. And so, Dave, I mean, just thank you for doing what so many of us say that we would like to do and that's write our novel and you're the one that's doing it so you are giving me inspiration and I hope that one day I'm able to follow in your footsteps and finish the thing that has been stuck in my brain and um, one that I have not been devoting any time towards. So Dave, thank you for doing what I know a lot of listeners out there probably want to do themselves and I wish you nothing but good luck and thank you for the incredibly kind words. So keep me updated. Um, and then now what I'm going to do is read our Wikipedia summary. So I will have a foundation upon which I can build my analysis of Stephen King's The Green Mile. Wikipedia. A first-person narrative told by Paul Edgecombe, the novel switches between Paul as an old man in the Georgia Pines nursing home sharing his story with fellow resident Elaine Connolly in 1996 and his time in 1932 as the block supervisor of the Cold Mountain Penitentiary death row nicknamed the Green Mile for the color of the floor's linoleum. This year marks the arrival of John Coffey, 
a six foot eight powerfully built black man who has been convicted of raping and murdering two small white girls. During his time on the mile, John interacts with fellow prisoners Edward Dell Delacroix, a Cajun arsonist, rapist, and murderer, and William Wharton, Billy the Kid to himself, Wild Bill to the guards, a wild-acting and dangerous multiple murderer who is determined to make as much trouble as he can before he is executed. Other inhabitants include Arlen Bitterbuck, a Native American convicted of killing a man in a fight over a pair of boots, also the first character to die in the electric chair, Arthur Flanders, a real estate executive who killed his father to perpetrate insurance fraud and whose sentence is eventually commuted to life imprisonment, and Mr. Jingles, a mouse whom Dell teaches various tricks. Paul and the other guards are antagonized throughout the book by Percy Whitmore, a sadistic guard who enjoys antagonizing the prisoners. The other guards have to be civil to him despite their dislike of him because he is the nephew of the governor's wife. When Percy is offered a position at the nearby Briar Ridge Psychiatric Hospital as a secretary, Paul thinks they are finally rid of him. However, Percy refuses to leave until he is allowed to supervise an execution, so Paul hesitantly allows him to run Dells. Percy, Percy deliberately avoids soaking a sponge in bine, sorry, brine that is supposed to be tucked inside the electrode cap to ensure a quick death in the electric chair. When the switch is thrown, the current causes Dell to catch fire in the chair and suffer a prolonged, agonizing demise. Over time, Paul realizes that John possess, possesses inexplicable healing abilities which he uses to cure Paul's urinary tract infection and revive Mr. Jingles after Percy stomps on him. Simple-minded and shy, John is very empathetic and sensitive to the thoughts and feelings of others around him. One night, the guards drug Wharton, then put a straitjacket on Percy and lock him in the padded restraint room so they can smuggle John out of the prison and take him to the home of Warden Hal Moores. Hal's wife, Melinda, has an inoperable brain tumor which John cures. When they return to the mile, John passes the disease from Melinda into Percy, causing him to go mad and shoot Wharton to death before falling into a catatonic state from which he never recovers. Percy is committed to Briar Ridge. Paul's long-simmering suspicions that John is innocent are proven right when he discovers that it was actually William Wharton who raped and killed the twin sisters, and that John was trying to revive them. Later, John tells Paul when he saw Wharton grab his arm one time how Wharton had coerced the sisters to be silent by threatening to kill one if the other made a noise, using their love for the, uh, the other. Paul is unsure how to help John, but John tells him not to worry, as he is ready to die anyway wanting to escape the cruelty of the world. John's execution is the last one in which Paul participates. He introduces Mr. Jingles to Elaine just before the mouse dies, having lived 64 years past these events, and explains that those healed by John gained an unnaturally long lifespan. Elaine dies shortly after, never learning how Paul's wife died in his arms immediately after they suffered a bus accident. And then he saw John Coffey's ghost watching him from an overpass. Paul seems to be alone, now 104 years old, and wondering how much longer he will live. So now I'm going to get into my review, which begins with part one, The Two Dead Girls. So King begins by explaining this experiment um, in an introduction and his points are sound. So just let me read what King wrote 
and I just want to say that it was so great to reread this because um, just holding these little editions that came out monthly in my hands, it, it was just so much fun. Uh, so he explains this on, um, let's see, page 11, Roman numerals 11. Sorry, he actually starts on page 9. So he's talking about uh, the, the serial itself. So he says, also, one read and experienced these stories more intensely, it seemed to me, because they were rationed. You couldn't gulp even if you wanted to, and if the story was good, you did. Best of all, in my house, we often read them aloud. My brother David one night, myself the next, my mother taking a turn on the third, and then back to my brother again. It was a rare chance to enjoy a written work as we enjoyed the movies we went to and the TV programs, Rawhide Bonanza, Route 66, that we watched together. They were a family event. It wasn't until years later that I discovered Dickens' novels had been enjoyed by families of his day in much the same fashion, only their fireside agonizings over the fate of Pip and Oliver and David Copperfield went on for years instead of a couple months. Even the longest of the post-serials rarely ran much more than eight installments. There was one thing that I liked about the idea, an appeal that I suspect only the writer of suspense tales and spooky stories can fully appreciate. In a story which is published in installments, the writer gains an ascendancy over the reader in which he or she cannot otherwise enjoy. Simply put, constant reader, you cannot flip ahead to see how matters turn out. I still remember walking into our living room once when I was 12 or so and seeing my mother in her favorite rocker peeking at the end of an Agatha Christie paperback while her finger held her actual place around page 50. I was appalled and told her so. I was 12, remember, an age at which boys first dimly begin to realize that they know everything, suggesting that reading the end of a mystery novel before you get there was on par with eating the white stuff out of the middle of Oreo cookies and then throwing the cookies away themselves. She laughed her wonderful, unembarrassed laugh and said perhaps, perhaps that was so, but sometimes she just couldn't resist the temptation. Giving in to temptation was a concept I could understand. I had plenty of my own, even at 12. But here, at last, is an amusing cure for that temptation. Until the final episode arrives in the bookstores, no one is going to know how the Green Mile turns out. And that may include me. to say I have come to love his introductions. As I've pointed out in my reviews of his short story collections, Night Shift, Skeleton Crews, Nightmares and Dreamscapes, we've, be, we've been allowed to track the progression of his relationship with the audience, beginning with his Crypt Keeper-like persona and ultimately settling into an ongoing friendship between the reader and the writer. The end result is of his introduction here. It's just that this is one of excitement. He's excited to do this, and he's excited for us to be a part of it. This particular experiment places us on the same footing. No one knows how this is going to turn up, but the fact that we're finding out together makes it that much more enjoyable. It's a publication that allows the reading process to overtake the story itself, much in the way that modern television is built with the understanding that think pieces and discussion around the show is just as important as the viewing experience itself. Simply put, nowadays we're thinking and talking about how we consume our media, and this extends backwards to 1996 when he released these installments. So, anyway, going back... Um, it's the actual story. Let, let's start. So, The Green Mile, Part 1, The Two Dead Girls. 
Now, though the installment might be entitled Two Dead Girls, King chooses to focus on the introduction to the real star of the book, Cold Mountain Penitentiary itself. King, through Paul Edgecombe's narration, details the experience of watching a man have a final sit upon old Sparky. Immediately, we are thrust into this world, and this is important because with the break in publication, the reader needs to want to come back, and when they do come back, they need to hit the ground running. A fully fleshed out setting allows for a smooth transition between installment to installment. And just a few pages in, I know I'm all in. Already, King is choosing subtlety over the obvious and allowing for complications which create more enjoyable reading experiences. This is stemming from my recent reread of Rose Matter, where King chose to avoid any nuance and instead strove to create stock two-dimensional characters, the insane domestic abuser, the kind-hearted rebound, the strong martial arts instructor. Now here, Paul Edgecombe's relationship with the inmates is complex as seen with the description of um, Beverly uh, Machuomi, who after two decades in prison finds new life as a beloved librarian. She is the first example of King showing us that murderers are people too, and he won't be afraid to make us care for them. Like Paul says on page 34, uh, they do touch you, you know. You didn't see them at their worst, hammering out their horrors like demons at a forge. Now, Paul first mentions John Coffey in the first chapter, but only in passing as he continues to describe the prison and Old Sparky. Old Sparky, his own self, sitting up on a plank platform on the southeast corner of the storeroom, stout oak legs, broad oak arms that had absorbed the terrorized sweat of scores of men in the last few minutes of their lives, and the metal cap usually hung jauntily on the back of the chair like some robot kid's beanie in a Buck Rogers comic strip. A cord ran from it and through a gasket-circled hole in the cinder block wall behind the chair. Off to one side was a galvanized tin bucket. If you looked inside it, you would see a circle of sponge cut just right to fit the metal cap. Before executions, it was soaked in brine to better conduct the charge of direct current electricity that ran through the wire, through the sponge, and into the condemned man's brain. Chapter 2 introduces us to John Coffey and Percy Whitmore, who you immediately dislike. And we immediately appreciate our narrator that much more when he tells Percy to stop with the dead man walking talk. That's important to note, by the way. The end of the novel will conclude with our narrator murdering an innocent person who is basically a 1930s Jesus Christ. King has to make sure that the entire time he crafts Paul Edgecombe's story, he presents him as a noble and kind man, despite his complicity in the death of John Coffey. King then spends a paragraph or two allowing us to get to know Delacroix, who has raped and murdered a young girl and inadvertently killed six others in a fire. King posits that it was the one crime he had in him and gives us a thoughtful examination on the death sentence. The fire had spread to the building itself, had engulfed it, and six more people had died, two of them children. It was the only crime he had in him, and now he was just a mild-mannered man with a worried face, a bald plate, and a long hair straggling over the back of his shirt collar. He would sit down with old Sparky in a little while, and old Sparky would make an end to him. But whatever it was that had done that awful thing was already gone, and now he lay on his bunk, letting his little companion run squeaking over his hands. In a way, that was the worst. 
Old Sparky never burned what was inside them, and the drugs they inject with them today don't put it to sleep. It vacates, jumps to someone else, and leaves us to kill husks that aren't really alive anyway. And after meeting Coffee, who you can't help but like, by the way, King gives us our first real tease when Coffee states, I couldn't help it, I tried to take it back, but it was too late. Now let's talk about Coffee for a minute. With 30 pages in, King has made it clear that he's going to humanize these murderers, but is also not going to shy away from their crimes as evidence with Delacroix and Beverly. So when we meet Coffee, we're already conditioned to accept the conflicting nature found within the inmates. He's gentle and fragile despite his giant size. His peaceful mannerisms create instant likability reinforced when Edgecomb offers to shake his hand. With Coffee, King is suggesting that something is different here, but don't forget that he's still on death row. So the big thrust of these early installments starts to work itself to the surface. Is this gentle giant a killer? Is he innocent? Of course by the end the answer is that uh, he's innocent, but in the beginning, Everything is up for grabs, and with this question embedded in your mind, it makes for a compelling read, because we want to like John Coffey. It was a brilliant move on King's part to immediately juxtapose him against Percy. It makes Percy that much more loathsome, and Coffey that much more sympathetic. We then learn of the awful crime that caused Coffey to wind up behind bars, and though we know that the twins have been murdered, the title of this installment is The Two Dead Girls. The retelling of events is nevertheless a harrowing experience. When the search party finally encounters John Coffey, it concludes with Coffey again making the seemingly damning remark of, I tried to take it back, but it was too late. The phrase itself suggests a lack of intelligence of someone who can't grasp the concept of life and death, or at least someone who can't understand the significance of cause and effect. This, along with his size and strength, I'm sure you're supposed to invoke the character of Lenny from Mice and Men. Spoiler alert if you haven't read... Sorry guys, this is one of the problems with uh, doing a recording upstairs with the windows uh, being open to the street. My dogs are very easily distracted, so I do apologize if you start to hear some, some barking. That's just them being uh, good little guard dogs. So, <laughs> anyway, uh, Lenny, I mean, I just, I think that you're, this is supposed to invoke Lenny from Mice and Men, and I guess, spoiler alert, if you haven't read Steinbeck's classic, you know, which is the high school English teacher's favorite, Lenny is a giant who is unaware of his strength and ultimately kills someone because of it, and he's then put down by his best friend before he can suffer a worse death. But although there are similarities to Lenny, an inspiration we've seen bear fruit with Wolf from the Talisman and Tom from the Stand, it's also a misdirect on King's part. He knows that the reader is going to assume that Coffee is guilty because Lenny had been guilty. However, that will turn out to not be the case. King lays down the groundwork for future installments, teasing the arrival of William Warden, the death of Edward Delacroix, the Warden's wife's illness, and the decision Paul has to make in regards to Percy. Let him join the active execution team or not. If he lets Percy be a part of the execution, Percy might have seen everything he's wanted to see and will find a new job. However, if he lets Percy join the team, then there's a high chance that Percy will screw something up, a fear that we will see come true in due time. The stallment concludes with the introduction of Mr. Jingles, 
who was a miniature guard, and King's description of how the mouse scurries up and down the Green Mile reinforces the way that King is able to move backwards and forwards in his narrative, jumping ahead, teasing the bad death of Delacroix and the death of John Coffey. And that is how he ends uh, the first section, which brings us to part two, The Mouse on the Mile. King blends the present with the past as Paul, telling his story in a nursing home, describes an abusive orderly who reminds him of Percy. King, having left off the previous installment with a description of the mouse, picks up where he left off, and understandably because the novel is called The Mouse on the Mile. After a brief sequence in which we get to love Mr. Jingles a little, King reminds us why we should hate Percy, who interrupts everyone's good time by trying to kill the mouse on page 16. And there was something else as well. In some part of his mind, Dean had already begun to accept the mouse as, well, maybe not a friend, but as a part of life on the block. That made what Percy had done and what he was trying to do not right. Not even if it was a mouse he was trying to do it to. And the fact that Percy would never understand how come it wasn't right that pretty much the perfect example of why he was all wrong for the job he thought he was doing. Soon after, King turns introspective, capturing life on the Green Mile, in this case with the lives of the condemned men. Steamboat Willie showed up around 7 o'clock. I was there to see his reappearance, and that's what they're calling uh, Mr. Jingles at first. So was Dean. Harry Twilliger, too. Harry was on the desk. I, I was technically on days, but had, to, had stuck around to spend an extra hour with the chief, whose time was getting close by then. Bitterbuck was uh, stoic on the outside in the tradition of his tribe, but I could see the fear of the end growing inside him like a poisonous flower. So we talked. You could talk to them in the daytime, but it wasn't so good with the shouts and conversation, not to mention the occasional fist fight, coming from the exercise yard, the chonk, chonk, chonk of the stamping machines in the plate shop, the occasional yell of a guard for someone to put down that pick or grab up that hoe or just to get your ass over here, Harvey. After four, it got a little better. After six, it got better still. Six to eight was the optimum time. After that, you could see the long thoughts starting to steal over their minds again. In their eyes, you could see it like afternoon shadows, and it was best to stop. They still heard what you were saying, but it no longer made sense to them. Past eight, they were getting ready for the watches of the night and imagining how the cap would feel when it was clamped to their tops of their heads and how the air would smell inside the black bag which had been rolled down over their sweaty faces. King then literally walks us through a mock execution, which despite the fact that it's just practice, sells the gravity of the profession these men hold. When the rehearsal is out of the way, King presents us the real deal and all the emotions that come with it. The execution is for Chief Bitterbuck, whose death is routine and clean, important to show so we have a point of context when Delacroix's death is so badly mangled. King speaks on the writing process during this section, in which Paul examines how the process of writing this down has unlocked doors that open into the important parts of the story that he'd never think of opening. And just in case you got too caught up in the tale of the mouse, he reminds us not to forget about John Coffey. It's a segment that wouldn't otherwise have been necessary if the novel was published together, but for a serial installment, it's important to remind audiences this character exists, so he's going to play a much larger part in the series. King then gives a very detailed rundown of Paul's urinary tract infection, which sounds awful. 
is a great way to set the events for later while grounding the novel in the everyday. But whatever pain Paul is feeling pales in comparison to the warden's pain who has just learned that his wife is dying. The installment ends with the cliffhanger as Warren arrives to the prison, and his attack on Dean causes Paul to pull his gun. Before we can find out what happens, King forces us to close the book and wait a month before we can pick up the next one. Which leads us to part three, Coffee's Hands. And thankfully, guys, you don't have to wait a month because I'm reviewing that part right now. Now, if you haven't read parts one and two, you could very easily jump to part three. It doesn't pick up where we left off and instead begins with Paul in his retirement home. And in between the descriptions of how awful it must be, King gives us enough exposition to allow new readers to pick up without getting lost. It allows readers to orient themselves before jumping back into the narrative. And with the prologue over, King picks up from the last installment, highlighting Percy's complete ineffectiveness when he's frozen in fear as Wharton strangles Dean Stanton. After the matter has settled, King reminds us about Paul's urinary infection with another vivid description of his pain while urinating. When it's over, Coffee requests to see him in his cell, which results with Paul following through on that request, which to me is a stretch. I can't see someone as disciplined and professional as Paul making that decision, and he only enters that cell because plot demands that he do just that. It's an action that's designed to place Paul in the cell in order to demonstrate John Coffey's supernatural abilities. So it's taken two installments to get to this point, but here we are, guys. We are now in the realm of the supernatural. And to be honest, I've been enjoying the minute-to-minute -minute daily grind of these penitentiary employees that I almost don't want the supernatural element. When Coffey heals, sorry, when Coffey heals Paul, Paul's religious convictions come bolting to the forefront of the narrative. His religious beliefs have been mentioned before, descriptions of what he had learned from his mother and how he had believed, despite the words that might otherwise vocalize, that the murderers on the Green Mile are going to hell. His mind turns to God immediately after, and King provides our conflict, which is described on the bottom of page 35. So I helped it, didn't I? Except he hadn't. God had. John Coffey's use of I could be chalked up to ignorance rather than pride, but I knew, believed at least, what I had learned about healing in those churches of praise, Jesus, the Lord is mighty, piney woods, amen, corners, much beloved by my 22-year-old mother and my aunts, that healing is never about the healed or the healer, but about God's will. For one to rejoice at the sick made well is normal, quite the expected thing, but the person healed has an obligation to then ask why. To, med to meditate on God's will and the extraordinary lengths to which God has gone to realize his will. What did God want of me in this case? What did he want badly enough to put healing power in the hands of a child murderer? To be on the block instead of a home, sick as a dog, shivering in bed with the stink of sulfur running out of my pores? Perhaps, I was supposed to be here instead of home in case Wild Bill Wharton decided to kick up more Dickens, or to make sure Percy Wetmore didn't get up to some foolish and potentially destructive piece of effery. All right then, so be it. I would keep my eyes open and my mouth shut, especially about miracle cures. 
Paul goes on a search then to find out more about coffee, and the novel, which had been a workplace drama, turns into a mystery. Who is this healer? How did he come to wind up on death row? After speaking with a journalist, it's clear that if Paul believes that coffee is innocent, then he's going to be the odd man out. He then goes to Venice, visits the warden's wife, now dying from cancer. And it's clear why King had given Paul the urinary tract infection in the first place. Without it, we wouldn't have seen the demonstration of coffee's powers. Without the demonstration of coffee's powers, Paul won't have a reason to bring coffee to Mrs. Moore's. Back in the prison, Wharton attacks Percy, and we'd all be happy if we didn't think it was going to set Percy off somehow. And King lays on the dread. Thunder rumbled somewhere far off. An unfocused heat lightning flashed in the darkening sky overhead. Bill looked up uneasily, his laughter dying. I'll tell you what, though, he said. I don't like this weather much. Feels like something's going to happen. Something bad. About that, he was right. The bad thing happened right around quarter of ten that night. That's when Percy killed Mr. Jingles. The act itself is awful. After Paul and Brutal lift Delacroix's spirits by promising him to bring Mr. Jing Jingles to the fictional Mouseville, an act which had soothed the soon-to-be-executed man's nerves, Percy swoops in to crush Mr. Jingles beneath his boot. It's awful. It's awful to read. It was such a good moment leading up to that particular act, and it's just completely ruined with, with just this awful character. Which brings us to chapter four, the bad death of Edward Delacroix. So King um, begins this installment with a look at present-day Paul, a prisoner himself at the retirement home, which looks very similar to the one that Lois's son had tried to put her in in the pages of Insomnia. Paul's existence here is terrible to read. Knowing the man he had been in this prime, Knowing how dignified and kind he had been, to see him wind up being bullied at the hands of a parasite like Brad Dolan is embarrassing and sad. As King gears up to begin the end of this experiment, he adds a mystery to the present-day Paul's story, and it's fitting that it's introduced simultaneously with the death of Mr. Jingles because the secret, after all, is that Mr. Jingles is alive after all these years. Back in Cold Mountain... Coffee revives Mr. Jingles, and Brutal and Paul finally put Percy in his place in a scene that's both satisfying and frustrating. Satisfying that Percy finally gets schooled, but frustrating to realize just how deep his delusions go. When it's time for Delacroix's execution, it's, it's, it's just it's hard. It's hard to read. I mean, first is Delacroix's goodbye to Mr. Jingles, which sounds absurd, but it's the most sincere and honest relationship in this book. So when Brutal starts to fight back tears, it's really easy to understand why. This execution, the titular bad death of Edward Delacroix, is among King's most thrilling scenes. From the thunder 
to provide a natural dramatic flourish to the life and death show below, to the range of emotions swirling through e throughout each of our characters, to the moment when Delacroix spots Percy knowing that Percy is the one that's going to kill him, to Percy's acknowledgement that the dream of Mouseville that Paul had given Delacroix was only a pipe dream, to the realization that Percy had soaked to the sponge. It is one emotional beat after the other, after the other. The description of his electrocution is a difficult one to read, but thankfully, Percy is verbally ganged up on by our heroes. Later, Paul realizes what John Coffey had meant when he said that he tried to take it back, but it was too late. Now, the purpose of Delacroix is clear. From a storytelling perspective, King has to up the ante. So with the emotion on display with this, this particular death, this awful death, it makes the knowledge of what's yet to come that much worse to bear. The installment ends with Paul wrangling the boys to break coffee out of jail in order to save the warden's wife. Part 5. Night Journey The previous installment left off with the absurd cliffhanger over Paul's shoot. He had given it to coffee and explained to the boys that he knew that coffee was innocent because of his shoe. One month later, for readers, we discover why, and I wonder if Kig figured it out himself along with the rest of us. Basically, it's revealed that Coffee can't tie a shoe. Therefore, he could never have retied his sandwich bag after opening it to feed the dog sausages to keep it quiet like the prosecution had stated during the trial. The boys then enact their plan, which involves a wonderful moment in which Percy is straightjacketed and locked in the padded cell. On their way out, a few things happen to John, the first being when Warden touches him, which triggers a notable response, and the next being when he passes by the electric chair and chillingly states that there are still pieces of the executed there, and they're still screaming. When they arrive at the Warden's house, King provides some thoughts that speak to larger themes that are personified with the Stephen King villains, such as Randall Flagg and the Crimson King, Agents of discord rather than what we have come to think of evil. I believe there is good in the world, all of it flowing in one way or another from a loving God. But I believe there's another force as well. One every bit as real as the God I've prayed to my whole life. And that it works consciously to bring all of our decent impulses to ruin. Not Satan, I don't mean Satan, but a kind of demon of discord. A prankish and stupid thing that laughs with glee when an old man sets himself on fire trying to light his pipe, or when a much-loved baby puts its first Christmas toy in its mouth and chokes to death on it. I've had a lot of years to think on this, all the way from Cold Mountain to Georgia Pines, and I believe that force was actively at work among us that morning, swirling everywhere like a fog, trying to keep John Coffey away from Melinda Moore's. What happens next is important to both plot and character. Coffee takes charge, plucking the gun out of Morris's hand and explaining the situation. It allows King to write Coffee as an active character rather than a passive one in service to Paul. Secondly, it establishes the balance between good and evil referenced just a minute ago and one that I'll discuss more in the Easter egg section of this podcast. What happens next might be a healer healing a sick woman. Sure. But really what it is, is an exorcism. Melinda Moore is depicted more along the lines of someone possessed than sick. 
King acknowledges this and allows the reader to make up his or her own mind, but he still gives Melinda's cancer intent. He describes it as having a mind of its own, and whether it's a literary flourish or something more, it is a great way to vilify something that is so everyday and heinous that we just have a hard time justifying. It's a really great moment. It's a highlight of the book, and that is where the section concludes, which brings us to part six, Coffee on the Mile. We have just over 100 pages to wrap up this story. And the story, remember, also includes Paul's present tale of his own imprisonment of sorts in the retirement home. And the ending to this tale begins with another confrontation between Paul and the reincarnation of Percy himself, Brad Dolan. As Brad begins to once again bully Paul, he's confronted by Elaine who pulls a page out of Percy's playbook and uses the threat of her family members to keep Brad in line. And King begins the ending of his tale with Paul referring to the end of his story with a mention of one final mile, a green one. So just think about that line for a second, because after six months on this journey together, the author and his audience have developed a relationship, so lines like this one must be as cool for the writer as they are for the reader. And really, I just have to say, I have to use that adjective. It's a cool moment. It's very aware, and it's a type of moment that we're going to start to see more of in the final Dark Tower books. After the boys return a very sick John Coffey to his cell, King reminds us about the moral complexities of these characters um, on page 24 when they release Percy from his lockup. I could smell the sour sweat in which he'd been basting. Basting. Some of it probably came down to his efforts to get free of the quiet down coat or to administer the occasional kicks to the door Dean had heard, but I thought most of his sweat had come as a result of plain old fear. Fear of what we might do to him when we came back. I'll be okay. They ain't killers, Percy would think. And then, maybe he'd think of old Sparky and would cross his mind that, yes, in a way we were killers... I'd done 77 myself, more than any of the men I'd ever put the chest strap on, more than Sergeant York himself got credit for in World War I. And then for fans that have wanted more supernatural out of the story, this is the installment for you. Furthermore, for fans that have wanted Percy to get what's coming to him, then this is the installment for you as well, because Percy gets it in spades. Coffee passes on the sickness that he had taken out of Melinda Moores into Percy, who then goes and murders Wharton. King loops back to earlier installments when he'd mentioned that Percy had moved on to Briar Ridge and reminds us that, yes, he does wind up at Briar Ridge, but not as an employee. It's a fantastic scene, and it may sound gruesome when I say, but it is a fist-pumping scene, um, considering the fact that it involves a murder of one man and the forced catatony of another. So yeah, it's a, it's a little gruesome for me. I like it, but I'm telling you, it's triumphant. However, though it's a sign of karma, or ka, for me, I have some problems with it because it lessens John Coffey. Yes, I understand that he realizes that Wharton is the murderer and saw right into him. He is more equipped to pass judgment on him than anyone else alive because... He can see him more clearly than anyone else that's alive. And if Percy suffers during the course of the murder, well, too bad. But the problem here is that Coffee is too innocent 
for this type of action. Until now, he's been an innocent man surrounded by murderers, and technically speaking, that includes the guards. But now he's just a murderer, just like all the rest. I mean, maybe it's King's way to make his upcoming execution more justified, but to me, it seems very out of character for Coffee. And unsurprisingly, Paul realizes that Wharton has been the one that had killed the girls, closing one of his final dangling mysteries. And what's worse is that Paul can't do anything to stop an innocent man from getting electrocuted, a task um, which he will have to take ownership when the time comes. To me, this is the bigger issue. On one hand, the moral complexity is what makes the soil of this novel so rich. However, when the boys discuss their problem with Jan Edgecombe, Paul's wife, they seem like weak, inactive men who aren't willing to try anything to get coffee off of death row. Jan functions as the reader's voice, providing possibility after possibility, and every time one of them shoots it down, she offers up another avenue, which again gets shot down. Talk to the sheriff. The sheriff won't believe us. Tell him that Warren ate dinner with the Dederick family. Well, that doesn't prove that he's guilty. Tell the sheriff that Warren admitted to the murder. Well, he might have been lying. They might be right, but in justifying their lack of action, they come out of the conversation looking like awful people. In short, they're willing to let an innocent miracle worker be executed, and they won't even try to help. That's the problem. They won't even try. It's realistic, sure, but it's troubling. What's good is that Jan is having none of it. I'm glad that King decided to speak through her, calling them out on their cowardice and telling Paul that he's no better than Wharton. Paul fears that his actions will cause his own damnation, but he's let off the hook by Coffee, who tells him it's all right on page 82. I'm rightly tired of the pain I hear and feel, boss. I'm tired of being on the road, lonely as a robin in the rain. Not never having nobody to go out with or tell me where we's coming from or going to or why. I'm tired of people being ugly to each other. It feels like pieces of glass in my head. I'm tired of all the times I've wanted to help and couldn't. I'm tired of being in the dark. Mostly it's the pain. There's too much. If I could end it, I would, but I can't. Stop it, I tried to say. Stop it. Let go of my hands. I'm going to drown if you don't. Drown or explode. You won't explode, he said, smiling a little at the idea. But he let go of my hands. This is not an easy story. And King does not make it easy for us either. Coffee's execution is terrible. It's terrible to read. The guards are crying, and he's being heckled by the family who thinks he's the murderer. And it isn't as if he finds peace at the end. I mean, every chance that King can get to turn the screw, he does. John's eyes turned to me. I saw no resignation in them, no hope of heaven, no dawning peace. How I would love to tell you that I did. How I would love to tell myself that. What I saw was fear, misery, incompletion, and incomprehension. They were the eyes of a trapped and terrified animal. I thought of what he'd said about how Wharton had gotten Cora and Kathy Dederick off the porch without rousing the house. He killed them with they love. That's how it is every day, all over the world. 
Brutal took the new mask from its brass hook on the back of the chair, but as soon as John saw it and understood what it was, his eyes widened in horror. He looked at me, and now I could see huge droplets of sweat standing out on the curve of his naked skull. As big as Robin's eggs, they looked. Please, boss, don't put that thing over my face, he said in a moaning little whisper. Don't put me in the dark. Don't make me go out into the dark. I'm afraid of the dark. As King walks through Coffee's execution, it should come as no surprise that we are given the details of the eventual deaths of each of the characters in this book as well. And with the past behind us, we see what Paul has been up to in the present. And there's no reason why it should affect this reader as much as it does, but it does. I mean, King reveals that Paul has been hiding an impossibly alive Mr. Jingles all this time. Though we get to see our pet mouse again, this is not a sweet ending. This is one of the more bleaker endings to a Stephen King novel that I've ever read, and it feels right. For a character who allowed the death of the most saintly and innocent being in the world, Paul's long life feels like a punishment. And what you really think about it, he should be punished. In terms of how he wraps it up from a thematic standpoint, he rushes us, I'm sorry, he pushes us into the corner, keeps wailing away on us. By the end, he delivers the KO right before we're about to throw in the towel. I look back over these pages, leafing through them with my trembling spotted hands, and I wonder if there's some meaning here, as in those books which are supposed to be uplifting and ennobling. I think back to the sermons of my childhood, booming affirmations in the church of praise Jesus, the Lord is mighty, and I recall how the preachers used to say that God's eye is on the sparrow, that he sees and marks even the last of his creations. When I think of Mr. Jingles and the tiny scraps of wood we found in the hole in the beam, I think that is so. Yet this is the same God that sacrificed John Coffey, who tried only to do good in his blind way as savagely as any Old Testament prophet ever sacrificed a defensive lamb, as Abraham would have sacrificed his own son if actually called upon to do so. I think of John saying that Wharton killed the Dederick twins with their love for each other, and that it happens every day all over the world. If it happens, God lets it happen. And when we say, I don't understand, God replies, I don't care. I think of Mr. Jingles dying while my back was turned and my attention usurped by an unkind man whose finest emotions seem to be a species of vindictive curiosity. I think of Janice jittering away her last mindless second as I knelt with her in the rain. Stop it, I tried to tell John that day in his cell. Let go of my hands. I'm going to drown if you don't drown or explode. He won't explode, he answered, hearing my thought and smiling at the idea. And the horrible thing is, I didn't. I haven't. I have at least one old man's ill. I suffer from insomnia. Late at night, I lie in my bed, listening to the dank and hopeless sound of infirm men and women coughing their courses deeper into old age. Sometimes I hear a call bell or the squeak of a shoe in the corridor, or Mrs. Javitt's little TV turns the late news. I lie here, and if the moon is at, is at my window, I watch it. I lie here, and I think about Brutal and Dean and sometimes William Wharton. I think of Delacroix saying, Watch this, boss, Edgecombe. I teach Mr. Jingles a new trick. I think of Elaine standing at the door of the, the sunroom and telling Brad Dolan to leave me alone. Sometimes I doze and see that underpass in the rain, 
with John Coffey standing beneath it in the shadows. It's never just a trick of the eye in these little dreams. It's always him for sure, my big boy, just standing there and watching. I lie here and wait. I think about Janice, how I lost her, how she ran away red through my fingers in the rain, and I wait. We each owe a death. There are no exceptions. I know that. But sometimes, oh God, the green mile is so long. It is honestly a brutal ending. Now, I have often spoke about King's optimism for humanity, and that optimism is not on display in the Green Mile. Now, before I get to my final thoughts, I want to talk a little bit about the characters, the first of which will be uh, John Coffey. So John Coffey is Jesus Christ. I mean, so let's just get that out of the way. Um, Just like Christ, uh, he's a thoroughly good man fated to die. The six-part installment simply updates the story and zeroes in on his walk with the cross, which now takes place on death row of a penitentiary. It's the story told through the perspective of a Roman soldier, one tasked with nailing him to the cross, all the while knowing it was his lord that he was nailing to the wood. King explicitly references it on page 88 of Night Journey. I dozed off and dreamed of Cavalry Hill, thunder in the west and a smell that might have been juniper berries. Brutal and Dean and I were standing around in robes and tin hats like in a Cecil B. DeMille movie. We were centurions, I guess. There were three crosses, Percy Wetmore and Edward Delacroix flanking John Coffey. I looked down at my hand and saw I was holding a bloody hammer. I mean, the, the guy's initials are JC, after all. And during the first demonstration of Coffee's power, Paul immediately thinks um, on page 28 of Coffee's hands, Suddenly all the strength went out of my midsection. It was as if the muscles there had turned to water. I slumped back against the stone side of Coffee's cell. I remember thinking the name of the Savior, Christ, 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 over and over like that. I remember thinking that the fever had driven me delirious. That was all. I mean, seriously, I mean, think about that. I mean, the first thing that he thinks of is Jesus Christ that he says over and over again. When Paul goes in search of some answers, he finds that there's barely a trace of Coffee's existence and describes that he must have fallen from the sky because of the lack of evidence of his life before the two dead girls. And in essence, that's where Jesus Christ come from. Well, he came from Mary, but... Ultimately, if you trace it back to his lineage, he clearly came from the sky. So when the guards unleashed, uh, unleashed the, 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 the fire hose on Wharton, Coffee just watches as King writes, as if he'd see the whole thing before, not once or twice, but a thousand times. And later, when Coffee heals Melinda Moores, I stated earlier that it reads like an exorcism. On one hand, it's Jesus healing the sick, but it's also King riffing on a favorite of his, of Jesus exercising the demon legion. And later, when Jan Edgecombe dies, Paul screams at the invisible ghost of John Coffey, blaming him for not saving her. Now this is Paul screaming at the heavens, 
right? So typically when something horrible happens and someone's feeling vindictive, they will yell at God. And that's exactly what Paul does here, except he's yelling at the God that he knows, which is John Coffey. Now, I just want to very briefly talk about Percy. Now, this is how he describes him. A guy like Percy doesn't even know himself what he means to do minute to minute and second to second. So, of all of Stephen King's characters, is there any more reviled than Percy Wetmore? The closest one I can think of at the top of my head is maybe Harold from The Stand. I mean, the two share similar characteristics for sure. They're both cowardly, spiteful, and constantly overcompensate. But with Percy, King takes it to the next level. From trying to antagonize coffee, trying to kill Mr. Jingles, or slapping the corpse, corpse of Chief Bitterbuck, King never stops reminding us how loathsome of a character he is. And it's a testament to his nuance as a writer that in, building, um, in a building full of murderers, he is the most wretched of them all. Now let's talk about the setting. As we know, uh, with the detailed description of Salem's Lot, the claustrophobia of the Overlook, the strangeness of the territories and midworld, King excels at setting. And harrowing scenes like Larry's journey through the Lincoln Tunnel or the familiarity of the Barons work as well as they do because King prioritized setting, as evidenced with the Green Mile. Cold Mountain Penitentiary is the main setting for the novel, so it's imperative that we live and breathe it. And King is so effective in his establishment of this establishment that he did for his books what television had done for a Boston bar in Cheers, a Nantucket airport in Wings, or an office in Scranton, Pennsylvania. With The Green Mile, King creates his equivalent to a workplace sitcom. Though this isn't the first time we've seen prison in a King's novel, it's the first time we've seen it as a job, and because we follow Paul Edgecombe and because we spend as much time as we do in our workplace environments, we get to know the other prison guards through a natural and organic fashion. Ultimately, it feels as if we work there ourselves and get lost in the rhythms of work friendships and day-to-day -day friendly conversations, as evidence when Mr. Jingles becomes a security guard himself, scurrying up and down the Green Mile, checking on the prisoners. It's such a wonderful scene because it shows how the right people can find joy in the everyday in the worst places and speaks to my thesis of the Stephen King philosophy that despite the horrors that visited our characters, he's still an incredibly optimistic writer. Uh, now I want to talk a little bit about Paul and Mr. Jingles. Now, King is pretty blatant about what he's doing with Mr. Jingles here, and that's establishing the mouse as a bit of symbolism for Paul. So on the bottom of page 77, going into 78 of Two Dead Girls, he just pretty much lays it on the table. I stopped laughing all at once, suddenly feeling cold through my flesh all the way to the bones. I want to say I don't know why I felt that way. No one likes to come out with something that's going to make them sound or look ridiculous, but of course I do. And if I can tell the truth about the rest, I guess I can tell the truth about this. For a moment, I imagined myself to be that mouse, not a guard at all, but just another convicted criminal there on the Green Mile, convicted and condemned, but still managing to look bravely up at a desk that must have seemed miles high to it, as the judgment seat of God will no doubt someday seem to us, 
and at that heavy-voiced, blue-coated giants who sat behind it, giants that shot its kind with BB guns, or swatted them with brooms, or set traps on them, traps that broke their backs while they crept cautiously over the world, word Victor to nibble at that cheese on that copper little plate. So basically, despite his position, you know, he is in many ways as powerless as this mouse. It's a bit of a cheat, in my opinion, that robs Paul of any true culpability for the death of John Coffey and robs the novel of a shade of gray that would have made the end of this novel a bit more morally complex. Now, we have some Easter eggs here. There aren't many, um, but there definitely is one. Um, which comes on a night journey. This is where I said I would talk about this in a little bit more detail, and so here is that detail. Um, so the Easter egg that I want to talk about is the white. Uh, this is the all-powerful force of good that combats the dark and dangerous things um, in Stephen King's works and has been stated as the white in the novels such as The Talisman, Needful Things, the Dark Tower series, Insomnia, and definitely seen, uh, though not referenced as the white in Salem's Lot. But we see it for sure on page 70 of Night Journey. And suddenly the world fell back into place for me, that spirit of discord which had jumbled my thoughts like powerful fingers sifting through sand or grains of rice was gone. I thought I also understood why Harry had been able to act when Brutal and I could only stand hopeless and indecisive in front of our boss. Harry had been with John, and whatever spirit it is that opposes that other demonic one, it was in John Coffey that night. And when John stepped forward to face Warden Moores, it was that other spirit. Something white, that's how I think of it. Something white, which took control of the situation. The other thing didn't leave, but I could see it drawing back like a shadow in a strong, sudden light. Now, let's talk about Stephen Kingisms. The first of which uh, is racism. Now, this is not to say that Stephen King is a racist, um, but he's dealt with racism in many of his books. And in early reviews of this podcast, you'll see how I struggle to talk about it because uh, King tends to use racism as a shorthand to show us a character's lower qualities. Now, he has explored it more directly in the pages of The Stand and in The Drawing of the Three in It. And with his portrayals of African-American characters, it's clear that he's not a racist person. The problem comes from at times uh, when you have an either... A highly stylized, inauthentic dialect, as seen in the character of Susanna Dean in the pages of the Dark Tower, or the um, Messiah-like, all-knowing black sage with the portrayal of Mother Abigail on the pages of the stand. Now, the latter is representation I have less of a problem with, because that character is 100% uh, positive, but I know that it's a criticism out there. And to reiterate, it's not one that I tend to subscribe to. Susanna, on the other hand, is a bit more problematic. And she is a character that is otherwise fully fleshed out. It's just that her dialect never rings true. Never once have I ever met a person that talks like that. Now, if you don't know what I'm talking about, just go and watch Airplane and focus on the Jai Talking Black Guys sequence. Um, Susanna and her alter ego, Odetta, aren't necessarily that bad, but it's all that I can think about when I read that dialogue. Now, in King's defense, 
he creates outrageous dialect for a number of his characters. Including the uh, over-dramatic use of Officer Nell's Irish accent in the pages of It, uh, the library policeman Lisp in the library policeman, uh, Dolores Claiborne's Little Tall Island accent, and others. So it's not limited to black characters, which shows that this isn't how King thinks black people talk. And again, I don't think that King thinks that black people talk this way. I just want to acknowledge that this is a criticism that's been lobbed against him. And my point so far is that at times I've grown uncomfortable at the racism within characters in his novels, which again are always unlikable characters, so I get it. And there are times when his black characters, such as Susanna Dean, um, just speak ridiculously. So I just, racism is being addressed clearly in the pages of this novel. Um, that's really. At the end of the day, that's that's really all that I, I, I needed to say, that he has addressed it before in his other books. Now, uh, the second Stephen Kingism is imprisonment. Now, it's fitting that the director of the Shawshank Redemption went on to direct The Green Mile because the two stories are d definitely spiritual companions to one another. But we've also seen imprisonment in pages of Eyes of the Dragon as well, and though uh, the story might not take place in a prison, we have seen imprisonment in both Gerald's game and Misery. Uh, this the, the third Stephen Kingism is that this is a first-person narrative. So, I mean, this is uh, not the first time we have had a story... Um, that's been narrated to us uh, from someone else. Um, so the most famous one, I would say, is Shawshank Redemption. Uh, we have our prison pet, which is Stephen Kingism number four. It was the pigeon in Shawshank Redemption, and here it's Mr. Jingles the Mouse. Number five is our literary shout-outs. Uh, King wears his inspirations on his sleeve, and because this is a novel whose process is inspired by the works of Charles Dickens, it should come as no surprise that King describes John Coffey as having so many chains on him he looked like Marley's ghost, a reference, of course, to A Christmas Carol written by Charles Dickens. Number six is The Unfunny Joke, which everyone laughs at, and that happens here. Number seven is Supernatural Black Insects to, to Illustrate Sickness, which was seen most recently in the pages of Insomnia. Number eight is the concept of twinners, or doubling, when we have characters that, um, we have two different characters that are, are very, very similar to each other, that they're like spiritual cousins or brothers or sisters. And here we have Brad Dolan and Percy Wetmore. Number nine is Bullies, and this is a Stephen Kingsman that, that dates back as far back to his first publication of Carrie, and the, the bully here would be uh, Brad Dolan and Percy Wetmore. Number ten is The Fear of an Old Folks Home. This was first introduced to us through the character of Lois in Insomnia. Number 11 is Animals Coming Back from the Dead. We have Mr. Jingles coming back from the dead here. The first time we saw that was in the pages of Pet Cemetery. Uh, number 12 is Insomnia. Paul suffers from insomnia, and most famously, Ralph Roberts suffered from insomnia in the novel Insomnia. All right, guys. So that is it. That is all that I have for this week. Now, make sure you tune into the next episode where I review Frank Darabont's adaptation of The Green Mile, starring everyone's favorite actor, Mr. Tom Hanks, 
and the late, great Michael Clark Duncan as John Coffey himself. If you haven't done so already, feel free to subscribe to the Stephen King Cast on iTunes and write a review if you get a chance because it'll help out the visibility of this podcast greatly. So thanks for listening. I really enjoyed rereading The Green Mile. Like I said at the top of this episode, this was such a wonderful reading experience when it came out the first time. It was a great reading experience rereading it um, for the first time. Now my second time reading it under my belt. I, I really do believe that this is King's one of or one of King's stronger entries. It is a thematically rich, um, emotional story that really tackles a lot of large themes, but as always, he filters it through uh, wonderful and believable characters, uh, which makes it work because there's a lot of unbelievable things that are occurring on the Green Mile itself. So I'm sure everyone listening to this uh, feels exactly the same way I do, Um, but for anyone out there that has not read The Green Mile, I strongly recommend um, going out and and reading The Green Mile, and if you can get them in their original publications, I would do so, and then I would mirror the the reading experience if you can, and, um, you know, read one a month for a period of six months, and just really think about each part in between, um, each time you sit down to read, to, to let what you have just read really, really sink in and, and get your hopes up and, and your predictions running and so you can just jump into the, the next publication um, after every month. So that would be my recommendation if you have now sat through an hour-long review of a book that you haven't read. Uh, if you want to read it, that's how I would read it. Um, all right, everyone. So thank you so much. Make sure you stick around next week and uh, have a great week. In the meantime, everyone, may you have long days and pleasant nights, and I will see you here next week where M-O-O-N spells Stephen King Cat.